the evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. A very good afternoon to you. It is the 20th of February, 2023. Just gone past 10 past the midday mark. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs the trusted name in roof waterproofing. If you're tired of getting contractors in to fix your leaky roof, only to find out that your roof still leaks, well, it's time to sort that leak out for good. Rubber roofs manufacture and apply the rubber paint to your roof. Your roof will look great and won't leak anymore. Rubber roofs offer a 10-year warranty. Rubber roofs is the trusted name in roof waterproofing. You can find out more at www.rubberroofs.co.za. A couple of minutes we'll be discussing crime stats that came out last week, as well as crime stats from the past decade. And joining me to make sense of all of this is Nick Ullafi, who is a education specialist, specifically when it comes to financial crime. And it's going to be great to chat to him, not just about the statistics and what's happening, but what needs to be done, because there are solutions to these problems. And as much as these problems seem insurmountable, with the right training, the right people, doing the right job, and I hope our president is listening to this. The right people doing the right job, we can make a difference. We'll be back straight after this. I just want to remind you, of course, that the views expressed on the show aren't necessarily those of Chai FM. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. You're listening to Confidential Brief live in Johannesburg on 101.9 FM. My name is Chad Thomason. I'm chatting today to Nick Ullafi about crime statistics. Now, let's just do a, a, a quick overview. When one talks about crime, one talks about crime in the general sense of the word. When one talks about fraud and financial crimes, people don't seem to take it as seriously as others, despite the fact that if one looks at the UK, last year 40% of all reported crimes were financial crime related. So in South Africa, if we're still so concerned about contact crimes, let's talk about contact crimes for a second. In the last decade, contact crimes involving murder, so let's talk about murder, has increased 62%. Conversely, during that same period of time, the police's ability to solve murder cases has dropped by 55%, leading to a current detection rate for murder of just 14.5%. During the last five years, we've lost a 1,000 qualified detectives. Now, we see people like Becky Chaley going on that we've just had 10,000 recruits um, graduate from police colleges around the country, and they're putting more boots on the ground. But boots on the ground are not experienced detectives. Nick, would you agree with me that putting boots on the ground isn't going to solve crimes? No, for sure. Thank you very much, Chad. Um, it's not going to solve crime. It's going to maybe at best um, create the perception that there's uh, preventative and uh, detective mechanisms in place um, from a, a law enforcement point of view. But training them correctly and making sure that they are properly um, applying the laws that they're supposed to apply, um, that is where the, the, the main thing is going to be in terms of measuring their successes. So here's my concern. When one looks at murder rates, they've increased by a massive 62%. Detection rates are only around the 14.5% mark for that, that the past decade. That's deemed a priority. Somebody from the community has been murdered. People are making a noise about it. 
and the detectives are only solving 14.5% of the cases that are brought forward. That doesn't bode well for other crimes. So you and I today are specifically here to chat about financial crimes. So if we've got so few detectives, how many are actually capacitated and able to investigate financial crime? And do we expect the figures of detection in regards to financial crime to be much the same as murder in the low teens? Well, I, I think that uh, from a, a commercial crime point of view or financial crime point of view, the, the detection thereof is really in the hands of the citizen. You know, when you look at contact crimes, it's, it's normally a, a, there's some, some sort of violence in, involved with it. It's person person or property, personal property, where fraud, one of the main premises of fraud or financial crime is it is supposed to be hidden. Um, you're not supposed to, 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 from a fraudster point of view, to know that there's a crime that has been committed. If it is the fact, then you, you, you're not a very well, well worst, um, uh, uh, fraudster from, from, from my view. Um, if you get away with it because of the fact that you have hidden your fraud well, um, that means that you are very efficient in, in committing the crime. So at the end of the day, you know, detection methods are really in the hand of the citizen. Um, and that's where there's a very big focus. And it should be a very big focus on, on, on whistleblowing and reporting structures because the South African police services or any other um, investigative um, unit or investigative institution in South Africa is not going to know about fraud if it's not reported properly, where opposed to your um, contact crimes. Um, it's either reported due to uh, for, for insurance purposes or it's reported due to the fact that um, there's a life lost or there's uh, somebody in a hospital and there's a legal requirement on, peop- on, 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 the, on, on um, the reporting thereof. So I think the reason the ISS, um, because that study I read out a few minutes ago, those percentages are in terms of a study by the Institute of Security Studies, and they released this in January of this year. And I think the reason they use murder is because murder would be, probably be the most reportable case. Um, certainly some missing people may later become missing persons, mm-hmm. but missing people, there's generally a body. There's generally an uproar, there's a community, there's a family, there's friends, there's other relatives. So I think they use that as an example across the board. So what they're saying is with a 14.5% detection rate, that's what they're saying the detectives are actually able to solve. So out of 100% of murders, you've got 14.5% solved cases. Whether that means prosecutable, because they don't go into the prosecutable side of things, I don't know. I think the figure will be even lower there. But I think the greatest concern is do we have enough detectives across the board qualified in all areas of criminal investigation? Um, no. Uh, my view, my personal view, and based on what I um, have experienced in my career, um, definitely not. Um, uh, they are very good detectives in the South African police services. They're very good investigators within the corporate and uh, the private sector. Um, but the the quantity of and the, the, the in um, capacitating them to actually do their job properly with regards to all the with regards to all the different um, mechanisms and technologies that's currently available for fraudsters to commit crime, um, they're definitely under-resourced, understaffed, and I must say, you know, I think they're tired as well. Today we're talking to financial crime education specialist Nick Ulafi about the problems facing the skills deficit that's found within the investigative arm of both the state as well as the private sector. When we come back, I want to talk more about how many people are actually engaged in this environment considering the high rates of commercial crime in South Africa. 
Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. We're chatting today to what I would term one of the more well-known but well-versed commercial crime instructors in South Africa. And the reason I say well-versed and well-known is because Nick Willoughby has made it his purpose not to brand himself as being a forensic crime specialist, but rather as an education specialist. And this is so very important to me because there's so many people out there that are wanting to investigate crime and building a brand around that, but they may not necessarily have the correct training. Nick is one of the few that is offering the accredited training that is so vitally important. But my concern after reading statistics is whether or not the state is taking the need for qualified, well-trained people seriously or whether people are just being regarded as generalists when they get transferred to detective branches. Perhaps you can help me with this, Nick. When we come across a police officer that's going to investigate a fraud matter at a police station or maybe it's been escalated to another unit, has that police officer received specific training in complex financial crime? In the perfect world, they should receive. Um, there's a lot of short courses that are presented by the police internally. Um, and I'm obviously not going to speak on the hand of the police, but um, based on my experience, um, by looking at uh, qualifications that was uh, that were um, or courses that were done by police detectives, um, there, there seems to be a, a lack of specialized um, training. Um, they do the general detective course, um, and but but there's a lack of really focusing in on specific type of crimes. And I think one of the problem areas is, in fact, in the crime statistics. Um, if you look at all the categories of crime that are reported on, um, they are broken down, you know, theft out of a vehicle, theft out of a home, theft out of a shop. But commercial crimes are not broken down. It's just commercial crimes. So there's no way for us as public to know um, what type of crimes. Is it corruption? Is it fraud? Is it money laundering? Was it, um, you know, whatever the different types of um, um, uh, fraud-related of commercial crime-related um, activities were actually um, – um, part form part of that st- of those statistics, um, and I think from that point of view, I think it maybe makes it difficult for any commander to actually determine what they actually have to look at. Even though I think they have access to the more detailed um, um, statistics through their internal systems, um, but definitely um, the bigger problem is the disconnect between the private sector and the South African police services. You know, we need, to, we need to remember that according to Section 205 of the Constitution of South Africa, the police have the mandate to investigate crimes. Um, but on the one hand, that is true. But on the other hand, we have case law, which indicates or which says that, um, you know, um, I think in State versus Boeta in 1995, where they say that there's a specific place for commercial investigators or private investigators in the context of certain environments um, to conduct the internal investigations. But the problem and the disconnect, in my view, is that the two doesn't speak to each other. You know, there's no there's no connection between the two. Um, the the com- the commercial crime um, investigators uh, from the private sector um, do something at, in one way, and then you have the detectives that, at the end of the day, and ultimately and ideally, those cases that are investigated within the 
corporate environment needs to get to the police, reported to the police, and then taken through the criminal justice system. And it seems that there's a repeat of work, a repetition of work between these two um, uh, law enforcement investigative units. I, I appreciate when you when you quote case law because we have a issue on a, on many an occasion where people think that you're usurping the powers of the police if you're conducting a private financial crime investigation. And State v. Buerta is the go-to case law from 1995 where they tried to say that the interim constitution made it the sole right of the police, whereas the learned judge ruled that it wasn't. In fact, Snayman in his law textbook in 2001 said he would see an increase or foresaw an increase in the amount of private investigators working in corporates and in state v dubey also 2000 um the state ruled that private investigators could actually go as far as to even lay traps to catch um transgressions of, of crime and we've seen a lot of fraud cases where people are collecting cards collecting phones etc and what they ruled there is that it's harder for the state to actually lay a trap than it is for the private industry because the states have to rely on Section 252 of the Criminal Procedure Act, whereas the private sector doesn't. Be that as it may, we are sitting with the lowest level of police officers we've had in many years. Some can say that there wasn't recruitment because of COVID. Some can say that, that, that a lot of people have taken early retirement. But we're sitting at about 180,000 police officers compared to um, the peak of just over 200,000 about two decades ago. Of that, only 38,000 are qualified detectives. So those are, th- those are, those are detectives spread across the board. When we talk about financial crime, we can include cybercrime. And when we see how South Africa has been hit and we see the damage that's been done and forget the fact that a contact crime is horrific. It is. We can never take away the fact that losing somebody's life or somebody being hurt or injured is serious. But when one looks at financial crime, we must not lose sight of the fact that it's also divisive. It's also life-destroying. We've seen people take their own lives. We've seen families split up. What in your mind, and you spoke about the perfect world scenario earlier, what is the perfect situation from the, the, the point of view of the private sector working with the public sector to capacitate the public sector to have the necessary knowledge to keep abreast of the ever-changing landscape in financial crime. Chad, in a perfect world, um, if everybody in South Africa, all citizens in South Africa, just go and do themselves a favor and just go and read the preamble of the Constitution, um, which basically is the vision of the country. And if we do that and each one of us decide, because it's a personal decision, each one of us decide not to um, uh, 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 or to obey the law and not to give a blind eye to some of the people that are not um, obeying the law. Um, that's point number first, the first point of call. The second one is in the reporting. Um, it's important that it's reported and uh, uh, all of, the, of, of these transgressions are reported, but to report a crime properly, especially financial crime, you need to be aware of what the different types of crimes are. So awareness training would be the, the next um, uh, rollout I would love to see from a governmental point of view. To Not waiting for institutions to do a fraud awareness week once a, month, uh, once a year, but to have a constant message internally in the departments and obviously to the, to the public as well. Fraud awareness campaigns is very important, or within commercial crime um, campaigns. 
Then from a corporate point of view, making sure that you understand what you are investigating and when you take that um, case to the to the police that you make sure that they, all the elements of the crime has been proven in your case file, your private case file. And then from a police point of view, the detective point of view, there's I think two components I would address from my from my point of view. The first one is to make sure that the divide between your normal general fraud and your specialized fraud um, is balanced. There, there, there must be balance between the two. You cannot train everybody in uh, digital forensics, for example. You need to have a focused team to work on that. But the general detective on, on the station level need to know and understand fraud. Your, 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 uh, uh, um, uh, charge office or public service centers of the police, the, the, the constables, the uniform people working there need to understand fraud. And the definition of fraud and what the different types of fraud are that they can actually report because the A1 statements, that first reporting of a crime statements are horrendous because they don't understand what the crime is. Um, and then um, the specific training that the detectives, general detectives and the, the specialized units must receive must go and, and coincide with the tools that they're going to need. It doesn't help you training somebody how to, to, to do digital forensics from a cell phone, for example, but you don't provide any of the tools that is required to do it because then all that you did is you just gave knowledge, but there's no practical application to that, um, to that environment. I'm finding a problem with the state embracing the private sector. We've seen that from a security standpoint, there's relationships that are entrenched now between the police and security companies. We've seen it where um, the security companies are patrolling the streets. The security companies are part of an E2 project called Eyes and Ears where they can help put um, more boots on the ground. They call it force multiplying. So the, the state has entered into an informal kind of relationship with the security sector but they're finding it difficult to get over the hurdle of entering into the same type of relationship with independent financial crime investigators. Why is this? I don't know. I, I think that maybe it's because of um, this, maybe a history of, um, let's say, lesser success, like with the community uh, safety forums, um, which are now trying to revive, to give them a bit more power or more money to, to, to give them capacity. Um, maybe there was... Too many um, incidents where, um, let's call it, uh, the, the, uh, the the private sector tried to do the work of the police, um, and that is all based on a lack of communication. And I think that the, the, the political will on the one side and the respect of the process on the other side from the community's point of view, because as, as citizens we tend to overreact. Uh, we tend to take law in our own hands with, uh, because we don't understand on the one hand what the process uh, is uh, or on the other hand we are frustrated with the current um, let's say lack of uh, uh, procedure um, in, in most of these cases. So um, that could be a, 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 a influencing factor why um, there's a bit of a um, uh, embrace problem between the two institutions. I also think that um, there's a uh, let me say it straight, uh, a bit of jealousy. Um, I think that because of the of the private investigative environment or community uh, or corporate investigative community being more resourced and can actually get to specific information much uh, faster because of caseload and all those type of things, it seems like that, that, that the, the, the detectives feels that there's a bit of a um, you are overloading us 
over and above what we currently have to do because you are bringing the cases so fast to us. Um, but if they take hands and they work together, I think they is with the prosecuting authority as well. I mean, it's very important that they get involved because as soon as they can determine that this is actually a prosecutable case, the case can go forward or it can go for further investigation. So, Nick, the organization I work for is a private organization, and we attend meetings as part of interagency task teams. At that meeting could be the FIC, the AFU, um, the DPCI, uh, crime intelligence, and then we like that last cousin that you really don't want at the Christmas table. We get invited, and we sit there, and they talk about the importance of stakeholder engagement. They talk about the importance of public-private partnerships, but they make it very clear that you are part of the private sector. You shouldn't actually be here, but we need you for this specific purpose. And that can be – it takes the wind out of one's sails because you're trying to make a difference. You're trying to deliver a complete product that's prosecutable. You're not there – for any other reason but to see justice done. And then I look at the statistics of people that are involved in the, in the investigation industry from a private sector and I start becoming concerned. If one looks at CIRA, for example, that, that registers private investigators, they've got about 600 private investigators registered. The ACFE are in a couple of thousand, the ICFP are in a couple of thousand, and then in the, in the banks and, and the insurance houses, a couple of thousand. So say for example, there's 10,000 um, private sector investigators in South Africa out of a population of 62-odd million um, compared to the police detective of 38,000. 10,000 who may eventually be accepted into formalized partnerships with the state will make a big difference. But 10,000 in the greater scheme of things, if one looks at the crime statistics, etc., is not a huge figure. Why are we not attracting people to our industry? I think it's because it's a difficult industry. Um, to investigate fraud is not as simple as um, finding somebody that broke into my house or finding somebody that broke into my car. Um, due to the fact that in those contact crimes, you will get some sort of fingerprint or DNA or CCTV footage um, where the accessibility to the hidden components of crime, uh, for, uh, commercial crimes, um, really makes it difficult. And 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 it, it, it feels to me that in scenarios that you are creating or you, 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 you add it now is that there's, there's really a, a bit of a professional, um, jealousy between the, between the, the, the different uh, institutions. Instead of working together, um, they, they are not. Um, they try, they say, um, they are working, they want to work and they, they are projecting that, but it, it seems on practical level, on ground level that, uh, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't happen. Um, and the, uh, w- the, the one thing that I want to add to that is that um, when when you look at commercial crimes, um, the law enforcement agencies need to start and recognize that it is not all about the Constitution. That Section 205 is not the end and the all. The, there is case law, as we already discussed. They need to embrace the fact that the private institutions can, according to the judiciary, um, investigate these type of crime and assist them. I, rem- I remember reading that in that case the judge actually said that um, it is impossible for one agency to investigate all crimes. And they need, due to a lot of reasons, the assistance of the private sector. What I find interesting, a lot of 
investigators don't want to call themselves private investigators because they now fall under the ambit of CIRA. I proudly call myself a private investigator like being fall, fall under CIRA because CIRA makes provision for private investigations. And this law has never, ever been tested. It stands. Section 1FG of the Act defines a private investigator as a person who in a private capacity and for the benefit of another person investigates the identity, actions, character, background, or property of another person without the consent of such person. That is an incredible piece of legislation. It actually gives rise to what should be an increase in private investigation and the acceptance thereof, like in State v. Boerter in 1995, like in State v. Boerter, State, State v. Dube in 2000, it gives rise to the acceptance thereof. So for me, the, from a legal perspective, the framework is there. Yeah. It's just getting buy-in, and that's what's so very frustrating. Mm. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, we need to just maybe for the audience differentiate between your private investigators that falls under the CIRA Act and then your corporate investigators that are excluded um, from 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 the um, from the CIRA Act uh, based on their based on their position and the internal investigations that they are doing. So you're 100 percent right. There's an exception to that. So if you if you employed internally for in a bank, for example, or a law firm or an accounting firm and your role is to detect or investigate, you are exempted from that. However, if you for personal gain, in other words, you or a company that you have established or work for and it's your sole job is to go out and, and perform a private investigation, and private investigation is very broad. For the context of today's conversation, the firm I work for are private investigations and we only investigate complex financial crime, the fact is you should be registered. And a lot of organizations have back-to-back registration with CIRA, like the ACFE has a MOU with CIRA where their members have automatic membership. So that's a good thing. But what I'm trying to say to you is the framework is there. It's time that the state stop looking for excuses not to engage with the private sector, but to engage with the private sector because that's the only way they're going to solve crime. 100% in agreement. When we come back, we're going to be chatting more about the qualifications that are available out there and what kind of a person it takes to be a forensic investigator. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. I'm in conversation today with Nick Willoughby, who is a specialist educator when it comes to financial crime investigations and anything related under that very broad forensic topic. It's something that I know he's exceptionally passionate about, as passionate as what we are when it comes to actually investigating. Nick, let's talk about the courses that are available and the type of people that are best suited to be in this environment. Because when we talk private investigations, it's very broad. But when we speak about complex financial crime, we're now beginning to limit the space. And it's a very special, delicate space. You've trained so many people. What stands out amongst those people as a common thread? Commitment to the cause. 
Um, I, I think that you can send a lot of people on training sessions and you can send a lot of people on quali- to, to study qualifications. But if they are not committed to the end goal of the, of the, of the, um, or the outcome of the qualifications to enrich themselves with knowledge to actually be more fe- efficient in the, in the, um, in the work they do, then, then, then there's a, a bit of a problem. So I would say commitment to the, to the, to solving crime is, uh, the one thing that stands out. So passion. Passion. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's another word for that. Um, and then obviously, um, in, in, in class environments and in engagement environments, um, be, Free or feel free to actually ask questions. Those ones, you can see they are the ones that's got the passion as well. So it's not, so they are not only there to sit and listen, they are there to engage, they are there to try and solve problems that they are experiencing within their own environments. And I think that is the two things that really stand out for me in, 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 in over, over the times that I'm busy with, with training in this environment is that those people that really have passion are those that are also vocal about it and they want to learn more. Subject matter, obviously law is a very big aspect of it and it's an ever-changing environment. But what kind of subjects would kids in high school um, be looking at studying if they want to go into this field? There's a, there's so many um, variants of, um, let's call it forensic investigation um, and focus areas of forensic. Um, but let's, for this and for this, for this um, purpose, when we look at the accounted, the financial side of it, now, which would then th- we would argue accounting um, or studying accounting, studying auditing. Um, those are those are the main things. So for that, you obviously need accounting at, at school. It's always good to have uh, a high level of mathematics. Um, when you look at some of the scientific ones, um, like for example, being part of the um, you know an, an, an analytic side of it, um, uh, let's say digital forensic, because remember, the digital forensic environment that really deals with the tools that the modern fraudster or criminal or, or commercial crime um, committer. Um, uh, used to actually commit the, 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 the crimes that they are busy with. So, um, in that case, you need IT and a higher level of, of mathematics. Um, when you look at, um, your other tools within the forensic sciences, where you look at, um, analyzing of documents, analyzing of signatures, analyzing of paper, um, and the ink on the paper, then, uh, some, some, um, uh, science and biology, uh, when you look at DNA as well, that, that's required, um, at school level. Nick, if, if we've got people who have a background in law or have a background in accounting and have seen that there is a need for them to move into this environment where they can perhaps make a difference in the, in the private sector and assist the public sector in investigating, how would they become accredited? What would they need to study? Well, accreditation, uh, each body has got their own rules. I'm not going to go into that now. But um, at this point in South Africa, um, there's not a lot of qualifications, unfortunately, in the environment of commercial crimes. Um, On a high education environment, uh, high education um, uh, focus, uh, that means your universities, private and public universities, um, there's but 27 qualifications that actually deals with it, of which um, only – um, one is in accounting and uh, one is in auditing. Um, then there's some of them, three, that, that deals with investigation, but that's not specific to commercial crimes. 
But then on occupational level, um, occupational level is now like the CETAS um, and the Quality Council of Trading Occupations. Um, there, in essence, there is only one public qualification at this point in time that deals with uh, fraud examination. Um, and that's the Occupational Certificate Fraud examina- uh, Examiner, um, which is a NQF 8 level qualification, and you need um, a minimum of two years of experience and a level 7 qualification to actually gain entry. And that's one of the problems that we have. There's a disconnect from the person going to school or going and then leave school in, with a matric certificate, and then there's no qualifications for them to actually go up to an NQF level 8. And that is what uh, my master's degree research is all about, is to go and determine what is the problem um, or where's the gaps and why um, is there so so many gaps between the availability of qualifications for the aspirant investigator and what is um, needed for the, uh, the, the, the crimes to be solved. That's very interesting, and I'm looking forward to, once you've submitted your master's and your dissertation being challenged, to come in and chat to us more about that, because I look back on my career. When I started while I was still in the military, in an investigation intelligence capacity, there was nothing I could study. Unless I was a cop, I could study through Technicon RSA in those days, but I wasn't a cop, and I didn't want to study through Technicon RSA. And what I saw in the private sector is if you are head of a security department, you're also head of an investigations department in the private sector. So all I could do in those days was a diploma in security management. Then in the late 90s, they introduced the, the Institute of Strategic Studies at University of Pretoria under Professor Mike Hoch, and they were offering fraud workshops. But these courses you're talking about, which are so vitally important, the public don't know enough about them. And there's not enough happening to be able to educate them. What do you think the state should be doing to make more awareness? And what are you doing in your capacity as Nick Ulafi to get the message out there about this type of training? Okay, to start off with, I think there must be much more collaboration between um, the universities and private uh, private training uh, uh, providers and the the, the state um, to to align um, the competencies needed and the curriculum that's available. Um, what we are doing is um, on a regular basis, but normally once a year, we have a, um, a workshop. Um, this year, it's in July, where we have a colloquium on, and the topic is anti-fraud, um, where we're going to discuss from various angles um, uh, the ethical environment, the detection and, and uh, prevention inv- uh, 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 point of view, and investigation and responding to uh, to the fraud um, um, context, um, and uh, to bring in. A lot of um, different speakers, but also to make it open because it's online one uh, online um, uh, event. It can actually go across the world for people to listen in and learn from um, from the knowledgeable speakers that's going to be there. There's a couple of ways to get to get hold of you to find out more about your training and the upcoming colloquium. Is org the best, or is there any anywhere else they should be looking? I think nickwellifu.org is the, is the best, but uh, the email is just as easy, n-i-c-k at nickwellifu.org. Um, and those are the two main um, f- forms of, of um, getting hold of me um, uh, for, for, for more information. Nick, we've got two dates coming up. The one is once your master's is submitted, and the second is after the July colloquium to come back and report back to our listeners what's come out of that. 
It will be a pleasure. Thank you, Jad. Thank you so much for joining us today. That was Nick Ulafi, and you can get get hold of him via Nick at nickulafi.org. If you want to find out more about him and his organization, and specifically the training, which is so vitally important, if you are a tired lawyer, a tired accountant, you want to get in there, you want to make a difference, you want to get that that qualification, you have an NQF7, contact Nick because we need more passionate people out there making a difference and I can promise you now, the state needs this partnership, our grey listing is imminent, if we don't get this partnership up and running between the public and the private sectors, we are fighting a losing battle thank you so much for joining us today, don't forget that Wednesday is our Radiothon, please tune in and if you want to call, pledge and challenge the number on Wednesday is 0101404090, I'm going to be in studio as well, I'm going to be calling Calling my mates up, I'm going to be saying to you, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to say, listen, for 180 bucks a month, you can support the station. That's all it takes, 180 bucks a month. I'm back same time, same place next week. But in the meantime, I just want to remind you that uh, we are so fortunate to have Rubber Roofs as our sponsor. Rubber Roofs is the trusted name in roof waterproofing. And they are there to sort your leak out for good. They manufacture and apply rubber paint to your roof. Your roof will look great and it's guaranteed that it won't leak again. There's a 10-year warranty. Look them up, www.rubberroofs.co.za. Going to close with ads and then that incredible song, my favorite song, by Bill Withers, Lovely Day.